You're listening to a Teach Colab podcast. Hello and welcome to another episode of our Teach Colab podcast. My name is Rob O'Connor from the Waterford Institute of Technology in South East Ireland and today we'll be exploring the questions how are we teaching theory in health promotion and why is what we're teaching in relation to theory important. In this podcast one of our own Teach Colab colleagues Jody Early interviews Professor Michael Harvey. The interview took place as part of Jody's role as social media editor for the peer-reviewed journal Pedagogy in Health Promotion. Michael Harvey is a professor of public health from Temple University in Philadelphia and recently wrote an award-winning paper titled How do we explain the social, political and economic determinants of health? A call for the inclusion of social theories of health inequality within US public health programmes. If you're anyway interested in pedagogy, the chat between Jody and Michael is a great listen. So without further preamble, here's Jody Early. Hi, everyone, and welcome to our Pedagogy and Health Promotion Paper of the Year podcast series. I'm Jody Early. I'm Social Media Editor for Pedagogy and Health Promotion. I'm also a professor in the School of Nursing and Health Studies at the University of Washington, Bothell. So with me today is Dr. Michael Harvey, a a professor of public health at Temple University in the Department of Health Services Administration and Policy. Uh, Dr. Harvey teaches courses in global health, comparative healthcare systems, U.S. healthcare system, and U.S. health reform. His teaching and scholarship also focus on applying social theories to examine inequality in healthcare and health promotion. Dr. Harvey has published many papers on the political economy of health, as well as what structural competency means in terms of curricular development within the health uh, and social sciences. In fact, that's what brings us here today to discuss Dr. Harvey's award-winning paper in PHP in 2020, which was, which is entitled, How Do We Explain the Social, Political, and Economic Determinants of Health? A Call for the Inclusion of Social Theories of Health Inequality Within US-Based Public Health. So Michael, thanks for being here today. I, uh, I have to say, I go back to this article many times and have used it in my classes. And I think it really speaks to conversations we were having too as an editorial board around uh, the need to really use more social theories. Can you talk uh, for a minute about what compelled you to write this article? Yeah, well, um, thank you, Dr. Early for having me. It was a real uh, honor to, you know, get this award. I'm not someone who publishes a ton or gets many awards. So this was a, a real uh, honor, especially after a difficult year. And um, uh, so I, I appreciate that. And I appreciate you having me on. Uh, I listen to so many podcasts, so it's nice to be on something like this. Um, yeah, so my my own, um, you know, what com- kind of compelled me to write this article, I was, uh, it comes kind of out of personal experience, like so many articles. Uh, I was an MPH student um, uh, some time ago, you know, about a decade ago. And I was, uh, you know, I entered my MPH program very 
kind of structurally oriented. I was reading, you know, I was reading Paul Farmer. I was reading others who were writing about structural violence and, um, you know, class hierarchies and, and racial hierarchies and racism and gender hierarchies and patriarchy. And I was thinking about kind of social forces and their role in producing inequalities in, in health. And I felt like I really entered my MPH program primed to kind of think more about those things. But uh, I think like so many students, my theoretical instruction was very behavioral. You know, our textbook was basically a, a behavior theory textbook. I I felt like at the time I left my MPH program, you know, more behaviorally oriented and even a bit more maybe politically conservative. I felt like, yeah, I, I, I was given a kind of vision of health that was very individualistic and very behavioral. And it was only some years later when I kind of, maybe not some years, but some, some time later that I reflected on that and thought about the role that theory played in kind of shaping my own thinking on these topics. So I, I became a little bit more invested in thinking critically about theory and what role it plays within both education, pedagogy, but also in, in practice and how we, how we do public health. Yeah. You know, your experience resonates so much with mine. I had a similar experience in my master's and graduate programs where, again, we seem to have these very popular theories in health education and public health that we obviously we learn about, but very much individualistic and wasn't until I was taking classes actually in gender, women, sexuality studies that I was introduced to more critical theories and wondered the same, you know, why are we not using this to apply feminist theory, for example, and looking at these issues, not just as from the individual, but obviously all of the different factors outside of the individual. So let me ask you this, how would you describe behavioral theoretical status quo within public health pedagogy. Yeah. Yeah. I, your comment's really interesting because it, it was similar to my own when I was doing doctoral work. And I, I really had to get out of the school of public health to get social theory. Like there, there were, you know, social theorists in the school of public health. So I don't, uh, I don't want to totally, you know, claim that there's nothing like that going on in uh, uh, where I was studying, but, you know, it was really the ability to get into sociology departments, to get into anthropology departments, to get into kind of other domains of social science when I was able to think, you know, kind of engage more with social theory. Didn't, uh, wasn't as present within the, within the School of Public Health itself, unfortunately. Um, but uh, yeah, it's, you know, so the, the behavioral uh, theoretical status quo, I, uh, it might be a term that I used in that paper, but, um, you know, again, it comes from this experience with, uh, with my MPH um, degree program. Uh, and then, you know, some of the subsequent research I did as part of my dissertation where we looked at, um, initially it was a dissertation paper, and then it was one that I worked on subsequently with um, uh, a sociologist, um, Margaret McGladry, uh, where we basically collected syllabi of core social or required social and behavioral health science courses. And we coded them up for, you know, the theories that they listed there. And we came up with, uh, a, you know, again, a list of commonly taught theories within these, these courses. And, you know, many of them were, were behavioral. So um, among those that were commonly taught, I think those were ones that appeared in some number of syllabi, maybe like three or more syllabi or four or more syllabi. 93% of those were behavioral. And I'm going to cheat a little bit and look at my notes, but what were they like? Maybe many of you are familiar with them. If you've taken a kind of core social and behavioral science course or a health promotion theory course or a 
public health theory course, they're kind of called different things, but, you know, health belief model, uh, theory of planned behavior, trans-theoretical or stages of change model, theory of reasoned action, precaution adoption process model, integrated behavioral model, social cognitive theories. So these kinds of theories that I think will be ring a bell for many of people, many people who have gone through MPH programs are the ones that we kind of identified. And it was nice to empirically show that they were kind of widely taught and, and there weren't, you know, matching social theories that were widely taught, though fundamental cause theory, which is one social theory that I quite like was, uh, was evident in these syllabi. So I that is the one kind of social, more critical social theory that was included. So it was nice to show this empirically, but also if you read the table of contents of a lot of these textbooks, like you'd probably come to similar conclusions. So it was nice to, you know, I thought the syllabus methods was inter- were interesting and, you know, we went about it in an interesting way. But, but I think, uh, again, kind of looking at the websites and the textbook table of contents of a lot of these textbooks, you'd probably come to somewhat similar conclusions anyway. I would have to agree, just recently looking at the text that I have on my shelf and also wondering, why aren't we infusing more theory is not stagnant. So it's really, I think this article has also just made me think about my own pedagogy and revisit that as well, which we'll get to in a little bit. Yeah. So let's let's talk for a second about what are the implications of this status quo as they relate to things like structural inequality and racism? Yeah. I, I think that's a, a really interesting question. I, I guess the simplest answer is, you know, you look at those theories, you look at their kind of theoretical constructs, you look at their pieces and you don't, you know, you don't see questions of, or, or, or any kind of operationalization of racism or social structure or uh, political economy or other sorts of things that, um, you know, you would be interested in when, when trying to discuss those things and their role in shaping health inequities. So, you know, I think, yeah, on the face of the theories, they just, they don't include that, that kind of language, those, those topics. So, you know, I guess in terms of implications, I think they leave students kind of poorly equipped to, to think about those topics, to think critically about those topics, uh, to think critically about yet racism, but social hierarchy broadly, how it's produced. And I think moreover, it's not just um, poorly equipping students, but I think when health is framed in individualistic behavioral terms, I think students get the impression, and I think this was honestly my impression when I left my MPH program, those behavioral theories help explain social inequalities and health inequalities. And I think that's a dangerous road to go down because all of a sudden you're saying, okay, so these these inequalities in racial health outcomes, in class health outcomes, in gendered health outcomes are merely the result of individuals making decisions that arise from individual motivations, self-efficacy, individual knowledge and attitudes and beliefs, which, you know, is a narrative that has for a long time been used to justify those hierarchies. So I think it's not only a, uh, an ignoring or, a, or a not, not engaging with those questions, but when you leave people with only individualistic behavioral theory, they come to see social hierarchy in those terms, which can be part and parcel of the reproduction of those social hierarchies when, when we think about in those terms. So um, that would be, yeah, that would be my, my concern with, with this um, behavioral theoretical status quo. I I think sometimes people are a bit, um, you know, I've heard people say, well, well, behavioral theory is helpful 
and we just need to, you know, add social theory. Uh, and I agree with that. I mean, I think there, there can, you know, I don't want to throw behavioral theory out completely, but, but I think there, there might be something more pernicious going on sometimes with students, even if instructors don't mean for that to be happening or the, the authors of textbooks don't mean for that to be happening. I think when those are the tools and those are the lenses that people have to see the world, they, they can come to see the world in very individualistic behavioral lenses, which is ultimately a kind of conservative or reactionary way to see social hierarchy. Yeah, definitely. A very simplistic way of viewing the world. And we know it's very complex. And also we want to bring it really like back to essentials, like issues of power and, mm-hmm. you know, like how many of our students, for example, know about Foucault and mm-hmm. what he, he wrote or Marxist theory. And so even some of those essential theories, I think we're lacking. And two, to your point, it was recent, I believe there was a health blog uh, that was published in 2020 that called out the language of epidemiology, our field, in the, and I use a big, big swath with this, but healthcare, public health, health sciences, in the language that we use to talk about race versus racism. And I think that is something that you definitely underscore in this article as well. So with that in mind, let's talk a little bit about even the danger of social determinants of health and how those are discussed in the literature. And without this grounding of social theory, what the danger is with stopping at that as well. I mean, to your question of race, uh, racism, not race, I think that's, you know, been fortunately emphasized recently. And, you know, I think it, it speaks to a similar issue where, you know, if you leave these questions up to people, when you say, oh, it's it's race, then people bring theory to that question. Oh, okay, it's race. Well, is it, uh, you know, genetic race? Or, you know, is there a genetic driver here? Is it like a cultural thing? You know, so if we, if we don't specify a kind of theoretical explanation, and uh, insist on racism and, and a, a framework for explaining racism, I think, I think we leave medical or public health established up to, you know, their own interpretations of these, again, kind of free-floating concepts like race, which are interpreted in all sorts of different ways. But I guess that is a a good transition to the social determinants of health. At least a a sense that I got sometimes when I was going through some of these syllabi was that, you know, they had all of these behavioral theories, you know, a few dozen behavioral theories. And then there was a section on, you know, social determinants of health and um, maybe like the ecological model uh, and maybe a few like weird, I mean, I I shouldn't say weird, but like non-behavioral theories, but they weren't quite social theories, like like diffusion of innovations and things like that, which are common in these courses, but don't really get to these questions of power and, you know, that you were bringing up before. But, uh, but I, you know, I push back against that. I think, I think they were, these books were, were saying, okay, here's all these behavioral theories. And then, okay, let's also talk about the social determinants of health because they're they're important also. And as if that's a kind of appropriate ballast or counterbalance to, you know, a few dozen behavioral theories is talking about the social determinants of health. It's, it's sometimes hard to say things critical again, you know, of the social determinants of health, because it is a term that has been defined in a lot of different ways and, you know, more expansive and more, uh, more narrow. But I've really liked uh, Nancy Krieger's discussion of the social determinants of health, where she says, you know, with, within the social determinants of health of issue is something like poverty and the relationship between poverty and health outcomes, uh, you know, different forms of poverty, different uh, manifestations of poverty and different kinds of health outcomes, not 
why poverty exists in the first place. And so that's the kind of theoretical question where, where does the poverty come from? You know, sometimes we talk about like, you know, root causes or, or things like that. But I, to me, theory is kind of what gets us there is like, okay, well, let's bring a theory to, uh, to that poverty. Is it, you know, critical race theory has a lot to say about poverty. Political economy of health has a lot to say about poverty. Feminist theory has a lot to say about poverty and why it's distributed the way that it is. And wealth is distributed the way that it is. And so you can get a pretty wide swath of, you know, Democrats and Republicans decrying poverty, but they're going to have all sorts of different explanations for that poverty. And so that that seems to me where the rubber hits the road of like, you know, the explanation of the social determinants of health. You know, there, there are other criticisms. I, I'm also drawn to work by Jaime Braille, who's an Ecuadorian uh, social theorist of um, collective health and Latin American social medicine. And in, in his work, he's, he's been more critical of the social determinants of health, you know, a number of different critiques. But one of them that has always stuck with me is that in emphasizing the kind of social determinants of health as kind of empirical, observational relationships among social conditions and health outcomes, they are a bit more pernicious in that they separate this kind of empirical, you know, methodological, methodologically visible world from this broader theoretical explanation. And so there's something not totally innocent in, in their emphasis on empirically observed social conditions and health outcomes because they, they are implicitly uh, separating them from these broader explanations, these kind of theoretical explanations. I think he makes similar critiques of like, like us talking about structure and social structure, which, you know, I would agree with too, like what, uh, where do the social structures, where do the policies or systems come from? How do we explain them? Yeah, I, I guess at the end of the day, I don't see this discussion of the social determinants of health as a substitute for, you know, critical social theory. I think we need social kind of to get to the title of the article, we need social theory to explain the social and political and economic determinants of health. It's not enough to just say uh, there's social determinants of health. There's these conditions in which we live and they're health relevant and they, we can observe them. This is what we do in social epi. This is what we do in uh, environmental health sciences. Uh, we, we observe uh, and empirically document the relationship between these conditions and health outcomes. Um, but that's not, that certainly contributes to theory. It helps us refine theory and uh, develop theory, but it, to me, isn't theoretical. It's not, it's not explanatory. It's, it's more empirical. I want to go back to, you know, just getting at the why and why the why is important, just even when we're talking about race and actually it's a social construct and being able to talk to our students about that. And many of our students not understanding the history of where that comes from. And then what comes to mind, and I think it was Dr. Ryan Petaway at uh, Portland State who wrote about the algorithms that exist might be pretty predictive, but why the hell do they exist in the first place? And mm -hmm. why is that okay that they mm -hmm. persist? I want to um, ask you, what are the social theories that you are teaching in your classroom? Before we move on, you mentioned things I keep wanting to get back to them. Um, <laughs> but um, I felt like a, a very a very good book that I read just over the summer. I got you know, kind of not as much done over the summer as I meant to. I guess that's everybody's case. But um, I did read Dorothy Roberts's Fatal Invention, which is such a nice, succinct, incisive uh, discussion of race as kind of political category, as kind of imposed political category, and and how it's how it's used as a political category. And I felt like it you know, it would be a really good pedagogical tool. I've never used it in the, in the classroom, but um, was, 
you know, just very helpful for me in terms of clarifying this category that is again thrown around with abandon and oftentimes not not defined, and people bring their own ideas to it. Um, yeah, so to so the question of teaching theory. So unfortunately, I'm not teaching theory right now. I was very blessed to teach the kind of fundamentals of uh, public health theory. I think we called it at uh, San Jose State University, which was a a really wonderful experience, had really wonderful students who I'm still in touch with and really wonderful colleagues. And so if the, if the question is what we, what we taught, what I was teaching then, so a lot of the theories that were discussed, so fundamental cause theory, uh, thinking about that as uh, we were discussing before, kind of art, you know, kind of the traditional fundamental cause theories, uh, socioeconomic status and, you know, social uh, or economic hierarchy and inequality as a social determinant of health or as a kind of fundamental cause of of health inequalities, but then also like subsequent work on, you know, racism as a fundamental cause of health inequalities. And I, th- I think there's an article on stigma as a fundamental cause. So this idea of fundamental cause having been applied in a few different contexts, which is really interesting. We read a little bit of uh, critical race theory. We read some work by Chandra Ford at UCLA. We read, you know, as part of that, there are articles on kind of intersectionality by Lisa Boleg and uh, structural racism by um, uh, I think the article by Zinzi Bailey was really well received, and um, Gilbert Gee, who's written so much on that topic. We did work on political economy of health, which I had an article on. Uh, I was happy to kind of contribute to that discussion, but I think oftentimes is associated with you know people like Vicente Navarro and Howard Waitzkin, and I think Anne Emanuel Byrne has written a lot on political economy of health as well. Uh, so you know a number of um, Claire Bombra uh, in the UK also. We did eco-social theory and embodiment. We read a lot of Nancy Krieger's work on, you know, not just the importance of social theory, but also, you know, her own theory that she's been developing, uh, kind of bringing together various theories, which is also really well received. I feel like there's a really rich discussion happening in epidemiology and social epidemiology with regard to theory right now. And I, I owe so much to Nancy Krieger uh, and in terms of her insistence on theory and the, the necessity of theory, the the niche that I've maybe found, at least for this paper, is you know trying to have that conversation more in the social and behavioral sciences, where um, I think it's also happening, but kind of differently. So we read articles on stigma, uh, Lincoln Phelan's work on stigma. Uh, you know, the author team who have also done so much on fundamental cause theory. We read about structural stigma by Mark Katzenbuehler. We did a little bit on uh, work like Latin American social medicine. We read a little Jaime Braille on uh, social determination of health and the health disease care process, other theories that they've used. So that's kind of a lot. And I feel like social theory is, you know, you could you can treat it kind of like a survey course, like I was kind of doing, but you could even spend you know, weeks on any one of those theories. So that was always a challenge because we had, you know, we also had behavioral theories that we had to fulfill too. Like we had to teach the behavioral theories. So, so it was hard to, you know, we might talk about pedagogy a little bit later, but it was hard to get all that in. And there are, there are students who were like, oh, we, you know, we talked about these social theories, but we didn't get to these other ones too. And I, I always felt bad about that. Like, oh, we, we, this could have been a whole class or a whole two classes on kind of advanced social theory in public health or something. But there's so much yeah. out there, right? Part of it could be that this kind of dovetails into what we're going to talk about next. But part of it could be just having students explore themselves, finding theories that you know they could bring to the classroom and discuss. I think that leaves a lot of room also as scholars doing this work to be as you have taking theories that we may not be more 
familiar with in public health or the health sciences and, and bringing those social theories into, into view and into application and seeing if they prove to help explain some of those issues that we're talking about that are so complex. And I, I wanted to also just touch on really quickly for those that are listening that are teaching global health or doing global health work, some really great social theories too that we could be bringing into the classroom. Um, and I know that you've, you've done work, you are doing, you have an ongoing ongoing project in Guatemala. In fact, do you want to just spend a few minutes talking about what that work is? Sure. Um, yeah. I uh, So, you know, I think with COVID and with little kids, um, the Guatemala work has been, uh, you know, in, in fits and starts. Um, but, you know, basically been looking at, you know, access, particularly in rural uh, Western Guatemala, access to, um, you know, non-primary healthcare services. So you know, I started getting involved around when I was doing my master's degree. So about a decade now working in a, a particular town, um, kind of engaged there with a particular hospital. And that does a really good job with primary care. And there's a lot of primary care providers in, in this town and in, in the area. But uh, something that came up with me was the, you know, when people are referred out of uh, this town or out of this area to a larger capital cities or, you know, the, cap- the, the capital city of the, the country, uh, there's always this question of uh, whether or not they were able to access those services. So, um, so the work is really looking at kind of these referral networks and how robust they are and whether or not patients are making their way through it. You know, I guess to bring it back to this theoretical discussion for a while when I was working there, I, I had heard from people uh, in, in town that, you know, not, not people necessarily who lived there, but maybe they were visiting or volunteers or whatever, that, you know, people in this, in this particular region, they didn't go to, to, they didn't follow through on recommendations to go to the capital city for specialty care because um, they oftentimes cultural reasons were put forward. There's like, you know, people would talk about like Latin American fatalism and they would talk about, you know, it's in God's hands and I don't want to, I don't want to, you know, pursue care further. And, you know, I, I don't want to, I don't want to make broad brush statements about entire regions and even especially regions like Guatemala, where there's so much, uh, you know, diversity, linguistic diversity, cultural diversity, but, but oftentimes talking to people, it was much more a a material reality that leaving town was very expensive. It was expensive to um, access specialty care for historical reasons. Indigenous Guatemala is much poorer than um, other regions of Guatemala. And so it is a, it, it wasn't this kind of, cultural rationalization for barriers to care or, you know, people simply deciding it was, or it it is that we're finding a much more material reality where people want care. They want access to cancer care. They want surgery. They want specialty services that we all expect for ourselves, but, but um, out-of-pocket costs are just really high and government expenditure on healthcare is really low and quality is really all over the place. And so those barriers are, um, uh, quite significant. So better understanding those referral networks is, is part of the part of the process. But, you know, again, there's a kind of fear, you know, to bring it to the theory discussion, it would be easy to explain, you know, simplistic and incorrect uh, to explain these barriers to access as kind of culturally determined, or, you know, people simply don't, don't seek the care for whatever kind of cultural um, reasons uh, without taking account of broader Guatemalan history, political economy, racism and, and ethnic hierarchies. 
linguistic hierarchies. You know, people don't always speak Spanish. And so um, going to a hospital where only people speak Spanish is an issue. So again, these, these theoretical issues pop up uh, uh, in those sorts of situations as well, even if we don't talk about them in, you know, theoretical terms. What comes up to, in my mind, is what kind of conversations do you have with students who might be participating in these trips around colonialism and history? And I think of a theory, what, what came to mind in talking about, for example, providing tailored or linguistically inclusive services is this theory of called social suffering, where one piece of that is that social institutions like healthcare and their bureaucracies in their intent to make things better can actually cause more suffering, hmm. uh, whether they see that or not. So just, just curious as, um, you know, what kind of conversations are happening around those issues as you prepare students? Yeah, that, that's a great question. I don't, you know, I went initially to Guatemala as a student, as part of one of these students trips. I don't take students to, oh. um, you know, I, it's not like part of an educational thing. So, Got it. so I don't think about those very thorny questions that uh, I, I, I blissfully detached from <laughs> that sort of stuff at, at the moment. I would, I would just read a lot of history before going. I mean, I think that's, that's part of it. It's, and I think, you know, even the kind of colonialism narrative can be very flattening. Um, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm speaking off the cuff, so maybe I'll get in trouble, but I, I really appreciate the move toward like de- decolonizing global health. But I'm just thinking about a place like rural Guatemala, which, you know, depending on where you were, even in the country at the time of Spanish uh, conquest, you We've had a very different experience with uh, Spanish colonial system. Mm-hmm. Well, in the in the Western Highlands where I've worked, this the Spanish kind of came and left. You know, they they had systems of forced labor, they had systems of forced tax payments, but I think their presence was less felt, like as as you know, Spanish forces kind of in the streets sort of situation. But, yeah, reading history and, un- and understanding kind of local uh, the local reality of of uh, of the the colonial encounter really. But, you know, to me, the, the history that seems very determinative in my experience in Guatemala and it, that ties very directly to what's happening there is, of, of course, you know, you could go back historically and think about colonialism, but also just like our involvement in that country in the, you know, we, we deposed a kind of leftist government uh, in the, I should know the date off the top of my head, but um, I think it was 54, uh, Jacobo Arbenz, and there's a uh, subsequently, a 30-year civil war, and there were leftist guerrillas. And uh, in the 80s, we funded right-wing. Uh, well, we funded a right-wing kind of counterinsurgency for a long time. But uh, in the 80s, um, they were accused of, or subsequently accused of, by the United Nations uh, and, and deemed culpable of genocide of kind of killing indigenous people. And you know, in the parts of the country where I've, I've done work and, uh, you know, f- because of their supposed ties with kind of the leftist uh, insurgency within the country. And that seems to be a very important history for understanding current political system in the country or situation in the country now. So, yeah, definitely the colonial encounter. But, but you know, history more recently, I think, is also yeah. very relevant, uh, even within, you know, many of our lifetimes. Yeah, I think you've given us some good and even though, as you said, you're not taking students there, which again, there's pushback even on those types of models, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. This is really great insight on theories and the foundation that you could create pedagogically 
for engaging in those types of activities, which brings us to really talking more about pedagogy and theory. I hear so many students complain about just how boring theory is oh, to no. learn. And yet I love to teach, I love to teach it. And I'm always would love to have a community of practice to just talk about creative ways of teaching theory. Mm. So I'd love to hear maybe some of your ideas of about pedagogy of of teaching about theory. Yeah. Um I feel like you need to do it for a while to know what, what works well. Uh, and like I said, I, I did it for a few years. I guess I taught it uh, three. Uh, well, I taught a few different because I was teaching online as well. So I might've taught like five or so iterations of the course. Um, you know, they always joke that, you know, in doctoral programs, you don't, so many positions are teaching oriented and they don't teach you to teach. And so there's so much learning on the job, I guess, you know, when it comes to emphasizing the importance of social theory, you know, again, I like to say we're all invested in the social determinants of health, we're all invested in poor, you know, lead in water and pollution in air, particulate matter in the air and access to green space. And uh, yes, we should be concerned with those things, but how do we explain them and how do we explain why they are unequally distributed in the way that they are? And, um, uh, and so again, that, that kind of calls for some kind of theoretical analysis for why black and brown communities are more likely to live in, uh, in areas with poor uh, air quality, for example. Um, that's not just an empirical reality, that's a historical reality. And that's, a, and that's something that calls for some kind of explanation for why, you know, do, do, do black people like living in neighborhoods where there's a lot of uh, particulate matter in the air? No. That, so you have to talk about racial residential segregation and histories of redlining. And, and so, you know, history, I think that's a conversation we haven't had as much, but kind of history and theory, I think, are um, the things that we need to explain those social determinants of health. Sometimes we see those pie charts of like 30%, you know, explaining kind of health. Uh, Nancy Krieger has critiqued these, so I don't want to be too invested in them. But, you know, you see these pie charts of like uh, health is 30% behavioral and, you know, 40%, I don't know, social and like 5% genetic or something. And, you know, you could say in that case, you know, we have all these theories to explain that 30% behavioral, like where are our theories to explain that 40% social or something? Like that. I, I don't know the numbers off the top of my head, but so at least in terms of kind of getting across the importance of theory, those are some things that I've used, but in, in terms of teaching it pedagogically, you know, I would like, I would turn the conversation you know, turn it around to people who are maybe teaching these courses now and ask, you know, ask for more research on this topic. Um, I have a paper that I'm working on with some former students on kind of receptivity to these theories within the course, within coursework. So that's, I, I think, important, like student perceptions on theory, but it that's more about content and not as much about pedagogy. So I'd really, yeah, I'd really love to know more about what has worked in the classroom, what exercises and assignments students respond to, you know, and, and like, you know, as we've discussed, theory is heavy stuff sometimes. I, I tried as best as I could to be sensitive to this while I did teach it. You know, people are engaged with the social determinants of health or social theories to explain the social determinants of health for different reasons, sometimes for intellectual reasons, sometimes for um, out of kind of ethical principles, they want to know more about them. Sometimes people see themselves in these theories and they see them very explanatory in their own life and their own life trajectory. And so I, I think a lot about those students who might have, and not the privileged students in the class, but the students from, you know, historically oppressed backgrounds who might have a difficult time with theory and theories that they feel implicated in. And they feel, mm -hmm. they feel like have uh, explained something of their uh, life trajectory. So I think it's a really important question. We need 
more discussion of it. It's relatively uncontroversial to talk about health health belief model and trans theoretical model and how we stop people from smoking. And it's and I think there's more onus on instructors of social theory to think about the impact of that pedagogy among all students within the class. So that's what I would maybe turn it around. Uh, maybe that's a bit cowardly, but turn it around to everybody else and say, you know, I would love to see more research, more work, more attention paid to those questions. How did these theories, how do we effectively teach them? How do we teach them in a way that's sensitive to the diversity of students in the classroom? Yeah, I think those are really important questions. Those are great. That's a great idea. And I I pose that same challenge to our listeners and to those who are teaching and writing about what they're teaching. Um, Yet the, one of the things I thought about is in my own class, how you mentioned really getting people to understand that constructs are all around them. Uh, How are students interpreting these and can they come to see these in their own lives and how do they interpret that? I've seen a shift when they're able to use, let's say, photography or new media or, you know, can you hear a song that talks about cognitive dissonance, you know, mm. bring, bring in an example of, of this where students are, are using those new medias, but also contemporary examples. And as you said, being able to push back. Like giving, I think sometimes students, and it goes back to these power issues, they see these theories and theories that have been legends or legacy in our syllabi and in our books and um, not really given the license to say, push back on this. How would you push back on this? So Mm. I think that's a good point. And I'm excited to see more in pedagogy and health promotion, I hope around how we're teaching theory, and maybe even some empirical research. You've given some great ideas, Michael, today around, you know, how do we test what we're doing is effective when it comes to these theories? That's something yeah. that we can look at. So Yeah, yeah. And in, in some of the research that, that I'm involved in now, I think one kind of theme that had jumped out was students who felt like social theory was empowering and helped them understand their own world. And I, you know, to this question of like the, the boringness of social theory, like, I think to the extent that we can make students feel like, oh, I, I have a lens on into the world. I have an explanation of the world that I didn't have before that it feels, feels empowering, feels like I can act in response to this new understanding of, of the world around me and health inequities. I think that is a laudable goal. So th- there are ways of making social theory feel, feel relevant and empowering to students, which is, uh, you know, it wasn't all good things in, in this study that we're doing, but that was one thing that had come up that um, was, was heartening for me anyway. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Harvey. We're out of time. This is, I, I could just talk to you for hours about this. Yeah. And uh, we hope to see more work from you, more papers and pedagogy and health promotion. And thank you for contributing these ideas. We need, we need more of these critical, this critical lens applied to the work that we do. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we had talked a little bit before about kind of sequencing of these courses. My theory course came just prior to the program planning course. And I think this is common with social and behavioral sequencing where you oftentimes have the theory course, or maybe it's even like incorporated into the program planning course that that happens now too. Um, But the kind of necessary narrowing of the theories that can be incorporated in a course that is serving a program planning course. Um, You know, again, I've written on political economy of health. Like if you were to you know, use political, like Marxian inspired political economy of health to think about health inequities and act on them, you know, it would involve a lot of like 
I don't know, workplace organizing and labor organizing over decades, or, you know, people write a lot about, um, you know, particularly from the critical race theory perspective, you know, talking about abolition and prison abolition and reparations and things like that. These sorts of activities, which would undoubtedly have effects on health outcomes and health disparities do not fit within the program plan. So, you know, if this theory course has to serve a program planning course, you're necessarily going to have theories that it's kind of a constructivist thinking about it, but like, you know, your theory course is necessarily going to be pretty limited if they have to be theories that easily fit within a time limited, institutionally limited program plan. So, so yeah, that's kind of a, yeah, kind of broader curricular issue. I think I would love to see, you know, you're, you're thinking on it as well. Like how, how would you imagine the incorporation of social theory within a curriculum? I feel like I'm, my experiences have been so limited to the institutions where I've, where I've taught. I would love to see an integrated approach, Hmm. like not just have this one class on theory, although I understand the necessity perhaps of that, but just really starting from the first class on talking about what theory is and, and then integrating theories throughout. Yeah. And I I think it maybe goes back to the discussion you were, the things you were saying before about critiquing, you know, thinking critically about behavioral theory. We may maybe also think about, you know, we've had all these theory, you know, the students have had all these theory, theoretical instruction, they get to the program plan. The question is like, okay, what, how can we apply these theories to uh, the program plan? But then what sort of limitations are imposed on, on the form of the, of the program? I mean, like you said, there's budgetary constraints, there are timeline constraints. There are things that this is not going to accomplish necessarily. And how do we just, just recognize it as, as a limitation of you know, any one program? So thank you so much. Michael, I, I think that you've said so much. I know you're inspiring me to think more about even bringing some of these theories into, into the journals that we're, that we're writing for. So I hope others listening today have similar thoughts. And also, perhaps in our discussion around pedagogy, people were just saying, ah, they should do this. So if, if you're one of those people, please write for Pedagogy and Health Promotion. We'd love to publish and follow us at PHP Sophie on Twitter. We can highlight not just Michael's work, but the work of others as well. Thanks for Thank joining so today. Much. Thank you so much. It was such an honor to, to discuss and it's so great uh, to yeah have this conversation with you. Mm-hmm.